Good morning, everybody. It's Giovanni McIver again here on November 12th, 2023. It's a Sunday. And where I am, it's late morning, and I haven't done a podcast in a while. Um, I'm a bit busy on some writing projects of mine, so it's very exciting. Had some major breakthroughs in certain things, so I'm happy. But I wanted to get back for another edition of the By Job Show. Going to try to do at least two a week, I hope, from this point on, um, if not more. But um, there's certainly no shortage of topics to cover. I will get back to the Israel Hamas war, so called. Um, I say so called because even that is a little, um, a little bit of. Uh, PR, I think, going on in certain places. But uh, I've noticed a lot of articles, things have progressed, um, and there's some things that I would like to comment on um, concerning other topics that are related to today's, today's show. So today's show is all going to be about war photography, not really all about war photography, but kind of, kind of an examination of it, because I saw a piece recently on television news about war photography and there was a interview with a war photographer who has a new book out of the work that they've done um, I'm not going to name names as usual but the work that they've done over you know I think decades um, have since retired as a war photographer but um, it was a little alarming to me to listen to this interview because, first of all, I knew that I know the person who was interviewing um, the war photographer. And uh, I have a bit of a, a background in the news business. And I have a bit of a background in photography. Now, um, the photography part is a little more tenuous. A little more, you know, I didn't have a huge background in it, but... Briefly speaking, let's put it this way. My father was a was a very talented amateur photographer. Um, my sister is a very talented fine arts photographer. In fact, I think her talent could rank up amongst the greats, honestly. But um, she does that kind of thing, and uh, and that grew out of her interest in the fashion business. Um, and then I sort of got into it because uh, when she was doing that, I dabbled a little bit. Um, I always had an eye for photography, but I never really pursued it. Um, the only reason I really pursued it is because every once in a while, when I was younger, I could make a little extra money here and there doing projects for other people. And then I had to learn the basics of photography so that I could learn how to work film cameras. And at that time, they were film cameras. So all the the um, the basics of film photography apply in that case. So I had to learn about well, film speed is um, you know when you when you have a when you have a, a film camera, it, it goes through at a at a certain pace, so many frames per second, and uh, so you can't control that. But you can control the the speed of the film. Speed meaning not how fast it goes through the shutter, but um, 
how sensitive the chemicals are. You know, so if you're in a low light situation, you've got to use a, a film that, film stock that, uh, you know, can pick up the light. And uh, if it's too bright, vice versa, you have to have more insensitive chemicals so that everything doesn't get burnt out. Um, and you have to know about depth of field, you know, how focus works, how lenses work, um, you know, wide angle lenses, telescopic lenses. Uh, sometimes you might even use filters and other such accessories, but you have to learn about depth of field. And, um, of course that's related to, um, lots of, lots of things. Um, so F stops and, you know, various, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but when you're telling a story, not only do you have to frame something, you have to the depth of field is important because it focuses your eye in certain ways. And uh, sometimes no depth of field is good, and sometimes very extreme depth of field. In other words, having something very in focus and everything out of focus other than what you're focused on, so to speak, um, is important. And other times, like in Citizen Kane, you know, you want, you want everything to be clear, right? So you don't have much depth of focus at all. Um, you want the foreground and the background and everything in between to be in focus. So all this stuff is important. Um, I think it's become a little bit less important with digital stuff. I mean, not, not really, but there seems to be less of a focus on it. I can't keep you, I can't stop using the word. Um, but you know, you, you have to learn about these things in order to use cameras and in order to tell a story properly the way you want to tell it. And right now, people really don't want to spend too much time focused on the technical technicalities. They want they want to get it, you know. If you if you can take your iPhone out there, you know, the iPhones have become much more sophisticated because they have three different lenses. They have you know, have all sorts of things that can can give you the illusion that you're using you know more sophisticated uh, technology. But um, you know, people just want to get things down on on camera. And it's a little, it's less about um, the photography these days than it is. The editing is much more important because people use that um, to express themselves, I think, a little bit more than the actual photography. But I think you want to have the best of both worlds. So I learned how to take some photographs because I wanted to apply to film school. Thank God I didn't get in. Um, and... Uh, so I took a series of photographs as part of my portfolio. Um, and then I started doing some commercial photography, um, taking headshots for people, uh, you know, doing some promotional things for people, doing some archival work to record what institutions had in their archives and things like that. Um, but then I went to graduate school, and uh, I was working for the graduate school newspaper. And uh, one of my responsibilities was to do a little bit of uh, photojournalism. Of course, this is a very amateur way of doing it, but um, it was something that I wanted to do. And at the time I was going to graduate school, there was the Gulf War was going on. Um, That's when I was in mathematics. And... Uh, so the Gulf War had happened, and then it had very quickly come to a conclusion. 
Um, and uh, in contrast to Vietnam, there was military success, at least initially. And so, after they put up the sign, Mission Accomplished, on that aircraft carrier, of course, nothing could have been further from the truth, because we know what happened after that. This thing was a complete disaster. It didn't serve any purpose. We had no business going over there in the first place. Complete overreact. Well, I mean, this was... Um, this was the, uh, yeah, the idea was that Kuwait was attacked by Iraq, and since we were part of a treaty with states in the Gulf, we were there aligned with them, and so we had to, we'd, we'd have to have some reaction against it. So I guess you could sell it that way, but, um, you know, let's not get into the whole history of colonialism and imperialism and the rest of it, but, um... The important thing is that it happened, troops came home, and then um, there was a big celebration um, down at Wall Street. You know, you know anytime something significant happens, there's a, there's a ticker tape parade, so literally had tanks going down the streets of Manhattan, lower Manhattan, ticker tape, people were very gung-ho about the war, um, I'm not exactly sure why they identified so strongly with it, you know, but they felt like they were winners somehow. And uh, I went down to cover it. And so the parade itself was, to me, very sad because um, I don't think you should be celebrating war in any way, even if it's a necessary and just war. But, um, you know, people were really, patriotism was, there was a fever happening and People were really pulling out all the stops, and so people were celebrating. And then there were a couple people on the sidelines who were protesting. Back then, it was kind of unpopular to protest, especially after the Vietnam War and the way some of the veterans were treated. There was a backlash right, against, against being against a war, or certainly against being against veterans, you know, um, and so now uh, the whole military complex has been deeply embedded into just about every aspect of our lives, especially after the Patriot Act and and the the the, the more recent wars. Um, but as I was down there, I was taking pictures, and uh, it was really interesting to take pictures because there was a real mania, right? And it was a very heightened atmosphere, and so. Even when there were just people there who were in the military and part of the parade and, and their supporters, it was they were still whipped up to, in, in such, a, in such a, a state of emotional, heightened emotional, um, you know, kind of state of being. Um, it was a little scary because uh, everybody was high on patriotism. And uh, it was like being at a rock concert. People were drinking and throwing things and you know I don't know it's kind of like when you when your team wins the you know Super Bowl or something and they destroy half the town I mean you're kind of like huh but it kind of had that feeling it felt like it was a little out of control and then of course when I was taking pictures of people um, a lot of times the first assumption was that I was I was there to you know kind of be a troublemaker and um well, I guess I was, kind of. I mean, I, I didn't really have any point of view. I was just there to document it. 
but in the back of my head, I was thinking, boy, this doesn't feel very, this doesn't feel right. And um, especially when you got into the, uh, the coverage of people, you know, who are having this parade and then the counter, the protesters, and you try to document that interaction, that, that's, that's when it became very hairy because people were very antagonistic towards each other. I think there was even some violence associated with it. But, you know, I basically kept my nose clean and got the pictures and walked away. But it was a really um, interesting experience for me. And, of course, if you take just that experience, which is a very mild experience, imagine what it's like to be in the middle of a war zone and um, in taking pictures and wondering, you know, you know, there's usually two sides to a conflict. And so uh, you may not know who who's who in the thick of it. Uh, especially if it's combat photography. Um, so it's a very risky and very dangerous uh, world to be in. And uh, you have to say that these people are very courageous to go in there and take the photos. Now, when I say courageous, I say in a very naive way. Um, you, 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 know, you have to conquer your fear to get in there. But I don't think it's intellectually courageous. And I think this is the focus of my, of my show today. Because what I found a little bit offensive during this interview was that this person, I'm not exactly sure what her background was, but um, she was a Western person, had an American accent, English-speaking person, um, and she had gone and covered numerous wars, including Rwanda and other such atrocities, which was really a genocide. Um, I know many people who did cover that and who, you know, had some pretty rough times after that, seeing what happened over there, you know, kind of secondary PTSD. And um, I certainly know the feeling of that secondary PTSD because after 9-11, um, I was taking in a lot of footage from around the world where I worked, and uh, I saw a lot of things that I wish I hadn't seen, um, things that were never aired because these things don't get aired. And that's part of my issue here is because, you know, after seeing those images for weeks on end, I think after 9-11, I was in the Bureau for about two weeks straight and, 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 and scared. Um, this was in Washington, D.C. Um, I actually saw footage of, the, um, of this doomsday plane. So I'm pretty sure they put that doomsday plane up on that day which was scary enough because that's the one that goes up when you, you believe that there's some kind of nuclear attack happening. But I guess it was the, the, the facts were uncertain as what were happening early, early on on 9-11. And uh, I have some footage that one of the crew members took and, it, and people were pointing into the sky. This is in front of the White House and uh, looking at this, this plane in the sky. And it was a white plane with no markings on it. Like, I don't know if it was a 747 or a smaller plane, but it was it was like a passenger plane. It wasn't a military-type plane, but it was completely white without any markings on it. And there had been rumors that the, there had been this plane, you know, that's, 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 that's there. So if there's a, a catastrophic nuclear holocaust situation, mutually assured destruction situation, the president takes the football you know, the briefcase with all the codes in it and goes up on this doomsday plane and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, maybe that's where George W. Bush was at 
this so-called undisclosed location, right, when they started doing that kind of thing. But um, I saw a lot of footage from, from the trade centers, from the Pentagon. And of course, I saw a lot of war footage leading up to that in other contexts for other stories, um, including the famous um, Column of Death um, video that was that was captured um, during the Gulf War, where there was a whole column, you know, that went on for miles of people. I think they were mostly military people, but, you know, the uh, NATO powers had completely bombarded them and eviscerated them to the point where, you know, I mean, what you saw left over was quite ghoulish and uh, worthy of the most, you know, extreme horror movie but this was real and so I had already seen that kind of stuff but um, the things I was seeing at 9-11 were kind of in the moment so of course it was a lot of the plane footage going into the into the towers you know things falling down the collapse of the towers people jumping out of windows people splatting on the on the ground um, and that kind of thing so that stuff is never shown on TV but uh, and of course, after nine eleven, there was a prohibition on a lot, even what uh, the images of the plane going into the into the trade centers, and you couldn't see anything. You couldn't see any people being hurt or killed or anything like that. But it's just the explosion and the buildings and the plane blowing up. But it was decided, kind of um, by proxy in a way, that these images would not be shown. And I thought that's interesting. Um, you know, it was very selective as to what was going to be shown. Of course, we know that when the body bags started coming back, you know, with American soldiers, those weren't shown either. Not only were the body bags not shown, but the, the coffins with the, uh, with the American flags over them, none of that was shown on television. And so there was a, an attempt to control the information, right, that was being, was being shown to the American people. And that Part of that was the government and the military censoring it, but it was also self-censored by the uh, by the very institutions that are supposed to be, you know, kind of the watchdog institutions, the uh, the, the journal the journalism world, right? And I already mentioned that you know the, we are we knew we all knew in the bureau that the war was going to happen. We were preparing months ahead of time for this onslaught uh, when after nine eleven in in. Afghanistan, first in Afghanistan and then in Iraq. There was a bit of a party atmosphere in the Bureau, right? It was like, oh, we're going to go on this big adventure, right? And who wants to go? And, you know, let's let's do the training for, you know, poison gas training. Let's get in the hazmat suits and the, the gas masks and let's go to Doha and let's all have a great time and we're going to, you know, we're going to cover this thing and we're going to get embedded with the troops and it's going to be it's going to be an adventure. Hopefully we don't get killed. Well, of course, some people got terribly injured, including one of the correspondents um, who had a severe brain injury due to an explosion and roadside bomb kind of thing. But um, yeah, it was, it was a little bit like, hey, you know, there was no feeling like, oh, God, this is, this is a horrible situation. Um, I hope I make it out alive, that kind of thing. Was a, there was more a bravado feeling to it, and I thought, "Ooh, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a take that I want to really see." So I I didn't go personally, but um, and I and I felt kind of dirty 
participating in the in the way that this whole thing was projected to the public because it was a very pro-American, very pro-NATO, pro-Western point of view without any real reference to history or any other thing, any other things. You know, people were just in the heat of the moment. Uh, even I fell for it to a certain extent, but eventually I caught on to my own stupidity. But this just happened for years and years. I mean, starting in, obviously, when 9-11 happened, but, you know, four or five years after that, pretty much every show was about the war or something to do with the war. Um, but, you know, you do have a, you do have a choice as to whether you want to participate in these things. And what, what frequently happens in the news business is you'd say, well, this is a job. Someone's hiring me to do it. And therefore my boss tells me what to do. And I do it and, and I just keep my mouth shut and I get paid and I, and whatever. And, um, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, I think that's a, a little bit of a, a bad way of going about it. And, um, this war photographer was suffering from PTSD and honestly, it's, it's no surprise, but, um, it's interesting to see her take on it because, you know, what, the thing that really triggered me mostly about the piece was that, you know, she had collected her war photography over decades and put it into a, a book and it's like a coffee table book, you know, I mean, it, it just had that feel to it. I'm like, you know, is this just here for our amusement, our you know, is is it like is it the same thing as putting a, a Picasso collection of pa- Picasso canvases in an art book on your coffee table? I mean, you're you're just, just kind of page through it and appreciate the artistry. And I mean, I don't know. I I didn't look at the book, but I did see one image that they put on the put up on the screen, and the image was during the Rwanda um, war or crisis or genocide, whatever you want to call it, and. The uh, photographer had been snapping pictures of this gentleman. He was a young African man. I'm not sure exactly, you know, what the situation was, but somehow he had got caught off guard and captured by the opposing side. I'm not sure who was on what side, but, you know, they caught him and he was, um, it was pretty clear that this militia was going to just murder him in broad daylight. And so first they stripped the, the young man of his clothes. These are all African people I'm talking about. Um, and, um, you know, they kind of, I guess, humiliate him. But in the end, what happened is they were about to execute him. And of course, they followed through with it. And all the time they're doing this, um, this war photographer is snapping pictures. And I'm thinking, my God, um, first of all, if I were that war photographer, I'd be very afraid because um, I don't know that they know who you are and what your interests are and what you're doing there and who you, you know, maybe, you know, are more inclined to support or not support. But you can very easily get caught up in, you know, there's some places where the press are not treated the same way as, you know, the standard around most of the world, which is that you don't touch the press. You let them do whatever they want to do. And it's for everybody's interest to document this stuff. Well, in this case, I would say it's not really in anybody's interest to document it. First of all, it's brutal. It's a brutal, horrible thing to document. It's going to cause pain to the photographer. It's going to cause pain to the to the victim. And all I thought was like, my God, 
You know, if I were that man who was about to lose his life and, and I was in such a fearful state and I saw somebody, you know, off in the distance, just, you know, especially a Westerner, um, snapping pictures at me, you know, the moment I was going to be executed, especially when I have no clothes on, I thought, oh my God, how horrible and objectifying and how, what a, what a, what a terrible way to go. If I were that guy, I'd want to shoot the war photographer too, not just the people who were trying to kill him. But this person was not armed. I don't think he was. And I thought, my God, you know, this person has no say in the image. Their family has no say in the image. Even the people who were the perpetrators have no say in the image. The perpetrators, um, I don't know if that photo was ever used to try and prosecute people for war. I don't even know if it was a war crime necessarily. I mean, who knows? But I just thought, what a horrible thing to do. I mean, I, I, I personally could not do it. And then you could say, well, that's you, you know, um, you know, toughen up, you know, get a backbone, you know, do your job, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, often PTSD is a, is a, is, is complex. And, um, you know, the reason that people get out of the war photography business is due to PTSD, but they kind of treat it the same way that they treat veterans. They say, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to try to fix you so that you can go back into it, right? Not to like, you know, go over in detail and say, should I have done that? What, why did I do it? Am I a victim too? Um, you know, just kind of get to that. You know, of course, during this interview, there was none of that talk. It was all about, you know, this war photographer is kind of like a hero, basically. Very courageous. You know, you're doing God's work, you know, by documenting all this stuff, um, you know, and there certainly is a something to be said about documenting things, right? But, but to me, that's that's almost a crime in itself to have these things published. And 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 let's even just talk about the idea of you know war photography in general. I mean, do do we really need to see the scenes? Do we really need to see you know dead people, maimed people, bloody people, dying people, you know, injured people? Um, is it really necessary? I mean, you could say, well, you know, the news photographers have to go out there and, you know, have some pictures to accompany the story. Well, I don't know. Do you really need that? Do you really need to expose yourself to it? Do you really need to compromise your moral and ethical integrity in order to get the story across? No. You know, you just report it, right? People can use their imaginations if they want to. You know, and in the past, there have been some pretty breathtaking war photography. You know, I'm thinking of um, the image in particular of during the Spanish Civil War, where you have a young man who's running across a hill and with a, you know, with a rifle in his hand, and he gets hit in the head with a bullet, and part of his skull is flying off. I mean, it's it's a, a beautiful picture, if you can say that, right? But what it's supposed to say to you is, this is the horror of war. You know, and you're supposed to be empathetic toward this person, right? Um, especially in hindsight, after decades have gone by and you don't really care who who was the winner and who was the loser of the war, right? Um, in that case, there was, I think that person was a, was, a, was a Republican in the Spanish War, so there was kind of a sense that he was going against the fascists. So, okay, so there, there's a little bit of hero worship going on there. But at the same time, in the end, when you look back on it, I mean, does it really matter who, which side, you know, which side started? I mean, even in the, in the Israeli-Hamas war, 
You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter who won, who, who started it, who, what really matters is what, what, what happened, right? How many people died? You know, 1,200 people died on the Israeli side. It's getting up to 11,000 on the Palestinian side. You know, so I think we have a pretty good idea as an aside that, you know, it, you know, one Israeli life is worth at least 10 or 11 Palestinian lives. I mean that, you know, ironically, of course. Um, it's pretty clear that there's going to be more casualties, right? But in the heat of the moment, none of this stuff is really, none of, none of the real important things are discussed until afterwards. And then when it's too late, everybody just says, oh, well, you know, I guess we didn't have time to, to think about that kind of stuff when you're in the heat of the moment. Well, it's about time we start thinking about it in the heat of the moment. And um, I think we, we, we need to discourage um, this idea that we, we need to have, you know, war photography in general. Now, documenting wars is kind of a different thing in a sense. Um, I think there could be something to say to just get things, you know, to be a witness to what happened, to, to, to use photography as a tool to, you know, establish the facts of the situation. So that later on, when you look at these photos, you, you, you have some evidence, or in the video, you have some evidence as to what happened. But if you notice, there's a double standard, just like at the airport, right? When, when a plane goes down in the United States and the people, the loved ones go to the airport, well, the news crews can't take photos of them, you know, wailing and crying and pulling their hair out. Because they're Westerners, and you know we have to protect those people. That's it's it's not dignified. It's not whatever whatever the rationale is, right? Um, it's insensitive, you know. But yet, if you go to like use a, you know, you know, well, let's just say a, an Asian country, you know, you, you, where's a plane? There's a plane crash somewhere in in let's say Southeast Asia or something, and there are people who are grieving, right, in the moment at the airport. Boy, it's a whole different standard over there. You can get right up in their face. You can ask them questions. You can run it on the news. You can, I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is there's a terrible hypocrisy in the war photography department because, you know, we do it very selectively, right? We There's, there's the cultural divide of the West, you know, and the kind of first world people power who decide what's going to be you know, what's, what's palatable for people to see, right? And so they're, they're kind of the decision makers on that. And that's, that's of course, completely biased. Um, there's one set of rules for Westerners and one set of rules for other people. And then there's the, the, the lack of any kind of historical content where, you know, um, uh, uh, there's no, there's absolutely no, you know, these in, in many ways, it's not put into any kind of context as to, you know, who's who. I mean, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And I mean, not that simplistically, of course, but, you know, who has some justification for, let's say, you know, defending themselves or going on an attack? You know, what what is the case? What's, what's happening here in terms of the historical grounding, right? And all that kind of stuff. That stuff just to completely disappears, right? To the point where it gets it gets a little scary, but it it goes way beyond 
war photography because it, it, it starts becoming more like a PR campaign. You know, the military has their PR campaign. The, um, you know, everybody has their, you know, their PR campaign going during times of crisis and war. And um, I think I'm going to get, um, next time I have a podcast, I'm going to get into some of it because, you know, you can see that already the, the PR spin is happening just like it did, you know, during the Gulf War and during the, the wars in Iraq and the 9-11 wars in Afghanistan, where there's quite a bit of propaganda um, being, and a lot of lies being told, actually, to justify what was what was happening. And, and the same thing is happening here, and, and this is a prime example where you have this war between, I would say, the conservative parts of the Israeli government and Hamas, and to a certain extent, yes, they do represent the greater population of each country. But, you know, first of all, um, you know, in, in my view, Gaza is, is I, I don't know if it's technically a sovereign state, but, I mean, Israel doesn't have any business being in there at all. Um, I mean, at least theoretically. And even now, there's, there's a lot of push to, to kind of shape it in a way so that they can go back in, occupy... And continue with what they what they want to do now. In, on the, on the reverse side of things, you'll notice that, you know, the, let's say the pro-Palestinian march in London, where they got over hundreds of thousands of people marching, you barely see it in the news. This is a a, a major demonstration that is very meaningful, and it's not it's given like a sentence in in the news, whereas all these other things, you know, are dominating the news the news cycle. So I'm going to get into that next time. But I guess um, it's just kind of some of this has, has come about because of the, the war that's happening in Palestine, but it also had to do with this, this war photographer. Now, in my case, I've made some documentaries where I'm an outsider, right? And you, you learn very quickly how, how you need to approach things because you know, if you're coming from an outsider point of view, you have to be very sensitive to that, uh, and you have to understand that, you know, the first thing is, first question that your subjects want to know is, well, who are you doing this for, why are you doing it, and how much money are you going to make off us, right? And that's a reasonable, actually, questions to, to, to ask. Um, and, uh, you, 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 you know, you really have to think about who you're going to let into your, into your world, and uh, even though, you know, I think I went in pretty innocently and had no agenda other than to say, oh, look at what these people are doing. In my case, these were related to the arts, but it was still a little bit prickly. One, one was a dance company and another was a community center and um, with mostly uh, Latino people associated with it. So, you know, you have people who would invite you in to document it and make the documentary, but then you'd also have people who are pissed at you because they're like, who are you? You know, we don't know who you are. We don't know who you're, and that's perfectly legit. And even though you try to explain it and even see the, you know, final thing and even like it, um, there's still a lot of suspicion and, you know, people think I made money on it or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. I, I lost tens of thousands of dollars making these things, but it was a labor of love because I... I saw what they were doing, and I, I thought it was beautiful, and I wanted to expose other people to this, the greater, the greater culture. Um, so 
even in that case, you have to be careful, right? Not to step on toes, not to, you know, kind of frame things, you know, in, in a way that might be biased or you have to ask a lot of questions. So if you're doing it that for that, something that's completely, you know, should be really non-controversial, dancing and, and uh, community centers and how they, you know, work as a, as a, as a support group, essentially, um, if, that, if that even causes some controversy. Imagine what, what kind of controversy you can get yourself into. I mean, and certainly, you know, I know there are going to be a lot of people who are going to tell me that I'm wrong about my, my assumptions about how, how imagery is, the legal status of imagery, right? And I have a long background in clearing rights and all the rest of it. And so, you know, typically people don't know that I do that. I haven't been sued yet. But, um, you know, there is a presumption when you're in public, like this young man who was in Africa, in Rwanda, has gone down. You don't have um, the presumption of, of having any rights, really. And you don't even need to have consent, right? A, a war photographer does not have to have your consent to use your image when you're in a public space. And um, it gets even trickier when it's not the news, because then you have to think about, for instance, if you take a picture of Taylor Swift, right, and she's in public, that's fine. But if you try to use that image to make money off it, right, that's where you're going to get into trouble, because then you're using her brand, in a sense, um, to, to, to make money, not to, to do, like, basic journalism and, or fair use usage of such imagery. So, but um, I don't know. I think in some circumstances, you know, um, in this particular uh, thing, I mean, it's not like you're going to ask somebody for consent, right? Because they're uh, honestly, they're going to be murdered in about 10 seconds. But you can't really ask anybody for consent, even the family members. But in a way, you should, right? So as a compensation for that, what you should do, in my view, is not run that particular image, Right, but this is not what happened. Um, it got compiled into a into a book, and and now this person's making money off it, and all with all the other imagery. And the other thing is, you know, um, just like we should have journalists who are home based, right? Where you know you don't have to send, you know, American institutions don't have to send journalists anywhere, right? It's just kind of fun. It's like going to a convention, and I, I mean that ironically, of course. Um, it's very sexy, you know, to get on the plane and, you know, travel and, you know, be an important person, right? It's about ego, but it really shouldn't be. And so, you know, when I was working in the news business after 9-11, I would just say to people, why don't you just hire people on the ground? You know, there are already journalists in Israel. There are already journalists in Gaza and the West Bank and Syria and Jordan, and Lebanon, and every other place, Egypt, and all you have to do is find them, right? They're called stringers. I don't know, it's kind of a pejorative term in my, in my view, but, you know, because it's, it's kind of like hiring people and paying them half the money to do it, you know, but you have journalists over there, why don't you hire them? They are already embedded in the community, they already know what's going on, they don't have to learn on the fly, right? They understand the dynamics of things, they've lived it, they have real experience in it, not just written, you know, read out a book. So their insights and their contributions can be even stronger than somebody who, let's say, went to Harvard, right, and got a, 
a choice job at ABC News because they happen to know the executive producer at such and such a show, even though they don't have any experience in journalism, might even not even have a degree in journalism. I certainly didn't. But, um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that goes on, and it's, it's very, uh, not just, I think, unethical, you know, getting back to our nepotism thing, but um, it's not just unethical, it's immoral, and it's unprofessional, in my view. But uh, this is never brought up. Um, and if you were to bring it up, people would look at you like you have two heads. They're like, what? You want to put yourself out of business? You don't want a job, buddy? What's wrong with you? Don't, don't threaten my job just because you have these moral qualms. I mean, don't let that get in your way, buddy. You know, so that's what, that's what I'm concerned with. Um, you know, and uh, the way that journalists, like I said before, are, are going around the world these days, Western journalists anyway, is under the protection of, the, the, of, of one side or another. And to me, that seems a little crazy because you would, under, you would imagine that people would be suspicious of you if you end up coming in to town with the U.S. military or government backing, right? I mean, then then it's clear that you're not a threat to the, to those people, so your reporting is going to be biased, right? But um, you might even be dangerous to the other side. They don't know who you are. They're assuming you're you're a press person. But I mean, don't be so naive. You know, we've had people, you know, in the CIA, go undercovers, all sorts of things, right? You know, um, uh, pretending that they're they're, they're, they're benevolent forces, right, coming into someone's country. And um, so it always amazes me when Western people are surprised that when you have an, you know, when Iran, when, you know, the people of Iran get sick of the corruption and, 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 and want to get Americans out of, out of Iran. And, um, you know, it's, it's like we never learn our lesson. Never learn it. And it just keeps, it keeps happening. And, and of course, on the other side, there's probably powers that are the, the equivalent of, uh, you know, here. But, but they're not running the show, right? They're kind of the, you know, in a sense, I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily victims, but they're, the power differential is so great, right, that they have very little say over how things get run. So, you know, all they can do is kind of throw, throw a wrench in your wheels if, if they don't like what you're doing. But, uh, you know, the people in the Western power structure do have the ability or at least theoretically have the have have some say in how things should run and uh, it's just unfortunate that more often than not any you know any kind of dissent from what the higher ups are asking you to do is is met with 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 you know at the very least blank stares and amazement but more often um, you're seen as a hostile person um, and that uh, a lot of times they just want to, you know, kind of either make you ineffectual and get you out of the system if you if you do have any power to change things for the better, which is the irony of it. Um, you know, certainly in the heat of the moment, they don't want to hear any of that. And, and usually after everything is settled down, you know, they, they just don't want to hear any, any anything about it because they're so sick of you know, having to deal with the war, and, and they just want to push it, push it all as as a as a as a complete subject out of their minds. So it, it never really gets addressed. Um, it just keeps perpetuating the same, you know, same bogus practices that that uh, you know. Could you imagine if somebody came here, you know, 
uh, I mean, this might have actually even happened, but, you know, I remember after 9-11, you know, there's some people who are, who are not exactly supportive of the, of the United States' position. And if they were from the, from the Middle East or something, of course, they would be, they'd be targeted by people. People would get angry with them for, for if they had any, um, documentation of anything that was kind of nefarious going on on the side of the people in, in the United States, either government or or government agencies, or military, or whatever it is. But uh, could you imagine, you know, if someone came, you know, let's just take it out of the war context. Let's just say there was a plane crash, and 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 someone someone from a, uh, let's say, an Iranian press agency went to, uh, let's say, you know, let's just say it happened out of Dulles or something. They went there and, and took footage of Americans who were grieving and distraught over the death of their of their loved one and they brought that footage back and aired it on you know Iranian television can you imagine the backlash that uh, that person would have to endure um it would you know they would likely try to prosecute them and put them in jail and i'm not joking cuz there are some i just saw this article about an Australian whistleblower um who is facing trial actually before the people he outed who did war crimes, you know, which is, which is the irony, right? It's a little bit like Julius, Julian Assange, right? You know, you have all these criminals who did really horrible things, including torture during that war. And those people have gotten off, including psychiatrists and other people like that, who take a Hippocratic oath not to cause any harm, right? But meanwhile, they're teaching people military people how to torture people and get information on them, which never comes because we've, we all know, research is pretty clear, that torture does not um, result in any gathering of information that's, that's credible. So, um, you know, all these things are related, but uh, it, it's kind of strange that the people who are trying to do the right thing, you know, they're circumventing law in a sense because they're leaking information, etc. But that even leaking information is not necessarily illegal. It happens all the time. It's just when it's, you know, very sensitive and can have political repercussions. That's when, you know, those people are taken to task. Whoever leaked it is going to be um, prosecuted to the full extent of the law, whether or not what they're doing is constructive or destructive as you've seen in the history of the United States um, we have we have various figures um, you know Julia Julian Assange and uh, you know uh, several other military intelligence insiders who have um, you know Edward Snowden and um, reality winner and there's a couple more you know who are being harassed and and uh, prosecuted in a, in a very, um, let's say, unjust and unfair way, if you were to, to look at it with any any amount of sobriety. Of course, this is all this all comes out decades later within Daniel Ellsberg's case, right? Now he's a hero, but you know he spent decades being a villain, and you know worried for his not just his freedom and his ability to make a living, but um, you know for his life, honestly. Um, and what did he tell us? He just, I mean, he, he didn't even tell us anything that was particularly sensitive, but you know, when, when you release information about that you have about Americans, you know, using drones to strike at targets in Afghanistan and, 
and 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 on occasion these go terribly awry and end up killing you know 20 30 people who were just going to a wedding right and it's and it's completely um covered up right um that's a problem i'm sorry that's a, that's a serious problem because if you're covering up that stuff i'm sure you're covering up a whole bunch of other stuff too but um you know the, the the people who 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 leaked the stuff had good intentions but it's going to take decades for them you think we would learn but no of course we don't and it's just ridiculous after a while um you know at what point did, does the lesson um stick but anyway um that's kind of my take on it probably have a few more things that i wanted to say that are just uh, slipping my mind at the moment but um I'm going to come back because I did see some articles somewhat related to war photography, right? Um, and the control of information and who gets to report what, you know, what's considered legitimate. As I've already brought up, you know, when when, got, when, when people, you know, the health ministry in Gaza reports how many deaths they say it's always in quotes or reportedly or, right, where it comes from Israel, it's just, it's it's just reported verbatim, right? And that's, that's an interesting take on things, you know, because what what it's saying is that you believe that you your your information and your morals and ethics are are completely airtight, and and the other people's are completely suspicious, right? And yes, there are times where people are going to, you know, like certainly in the court of law, but in the court of public opinion, people are going to put forth their best argument, right? Even if it's based on partial truth or lies. But we've got to get out of this 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 way of thinking because it's caused a lot of damage in in many ways. But um, I'm going to get back to it because I'm looking at Algeria. I, I basically am looking at three reference points, which may not be the best combination. But I'm looking at Al Jazeera. I'm looking at the Guardian, and I'm looking at AP News. And um, moment my computer is parked on Al Jazeera and and uh, this is one of the articles I'm going to get into because it says how America's bloodthirsty journalism cheers on Israel's war on Gaza and I think that's an opinion piece but um, that's the kind of thing that I'm going to get into next because I think it's really important you know that we get a real you know if you're going to use war photography and reporting let's use it to get to the facts right of the case not to get to a certain you know you know reporting of the facts within a narrative right that that people have a special interest in right you know journalism whether you're american iranian japanese russian ukrainian uh from chile or brazil right it shouldn't matter where you're from right you shouldn't be reporting on the military the u.s military as a u.s citizen as if you're somehow associated with the military right you should see it as objectively as you can right from the point of view of a disinterested observer as much as you possibly can and that should be true you know, should make it more like a science, right? You should be reporting facts instead of opinions, narratives, right? And what people don't know is that a lot of these narratives that end up on your newsfeed, whether it's the New York Times or the Post, 
are just verbatim um, reproductions of of a of a press release that's been it, it it isn't even they aren't even you know they aren't even parsed to see what is true or what's not true or you know could this be biased or could this I mean it is so lazy and so unprofessional I mean it's it's just uh, kind of alarming um, but that was my experience so. Um, you know, I feel bad for some of the people on TV because I know, I just know, knowing them personally, that they might have their own personal feelings about what's happening in Israel and Gaza. And But yet they, they're talking and they're reporting as if they're coming straight out of the Israeli handbook. I, I don't understand how you, can, how you can make those two worlds meet. I mean, at some point it's going to have an effect on your mental health and... and uh, you're going to feel like a complete hypocrite and, um, you know, but, you know, don't ever bring that up with anybody because if you ever expose the psychological truths of what's going on, it, I mean, it's hard enough to get people to listen when you just have the mildest, you know, you know, let's say constructive criticism. But when you come at them with, with psychological reality, right, that's when people freak out and they get even more defensive and more, you know, and if you're attentive is to, kind of change, you know, to, to be a, a, a force for change, to, to help someone realize, right, what they're doing and how it's going to have a negative effect on them, you know, they're just going to double down um, on you if you come at them with, with anything that's contrary to their circumstance. And a lot of times it's just it's simply they need a job, right, and they've worked hard to get where they are, and it's it would be it would just it would be all that you know the 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 cost of 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 voluntarily you know um, taking yourself out of that situation just seems too too high and um, that's a shame because um, you know you you don't want to want to be one of these people where you do something for 50 years, you retire and you're 70 years old and then suddenly have time to think about it and you say, oh my God, my whole life was a lie. I mean, not only was I not seeing reality, but, you know, I was manipulated and I was, I got myself, I manipulated myself, right? Not to be true to myself, right? For the sake of just getting by, you know, it's not that hard to get by, Right? But once you get the money, the, the salary, the, not the notoriety, the, the celebrity, you know, being invited to this conference and that conference, and suddenly you're a hero, you're the representative of, you know, a whole group of people, and you can't let these people down. And, you know, it's just very hard to get off the train because, you know, you get so many awards, you get, I mean, I can just imagine that it feels good to the ego, in a sense, as long as you're in denial but in the end, I don't know. I don't want to be that person, you know, who takes advantage of that. And then when you're 75 years old and you're on, or you know, whatever, 80, 90, and you're on your deathbed, and you look back on your life and say, "My God, every time I had a chance, you know, to change the course of my life, even in little ways, right? I I didn't do it. Right? Does that make you courageous? No, that makes you cowardly. But uh, you know, and you can say this in much less, you know, let's say, 
coded language and, and try to put it diplomatically like a like a like if you were talking to someone who was a client who was a psychotherapeutic client, right? You wouldn't be saying it that way, but you would you know, you'd be saying it a certain way that, that's that's softer, that that still has the ring of truth to it, right? Are you are you feeling like you're living your best life, your authentic life? Right? Are there alternatives? You know, a lot of times people don't have enough time, money or or privilege, honestly, to, to think about this stuff. But we, we should all. That's probably why we're kept so busy, right? You know, the more demands there are on you, the less time you have to actually think about what you're doing. So people just go along. I got a job, they tell me what to do, and I do it. And since I'm getting all these amazing baubles that come with it, you know, why should I stop? Well, you should stop because you, you should look inward and, and start questioning what's happening. I mean, I think that's what I did. I mean, I can't say that I wasn't hypocritical, in, 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 but sometimes I was unaware of what I was doing. And, uh, you know, once I figured out what was happening and I educated myself a little bit about it, I, I did make some changes. I mean, maybe not wholesale changes, but, um, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, pretending like I'm some kind of martyr here or something, but, you know, um, yeah, let's have some reality check, right? That's what we're missing. And uh, we're missing a dialogue, you know, an open, honest dialogue. You know, that stuff is not allowed in our in our public space. And um, I mean, it's allowed in a way. It's it's but it's mostly just window dressing. It doesn't really get to the core of anything. Because if it did, we would change, right? And that's why the humanities are so important. Because the humanities is what drives everything, right? We need to be educated in order to make good decisions. And therefore, you need a broad knowledge of history, etc., etc. And that's what um, our system is actively fighting against, right? We're busy about, we're, we're very busy trying to get ahead in a technological sense, right? So that we can use all these tools in order to not just dominate the world militarily, but also to dominate it economically and therefore reap incredible benefits for, at the cost of other people, right, in other places, which is what essentially capitalism is very good at doing, especially this kind of capitalism, this, this distorted, hyper-capitalistic, you know, age of the robber barons 2.0 type thing that's happening these days. So anyway, I'm going to leave it at that. You know, I'm going to get the socialist thing, right? Because anytime you talk in those terms, it's like, oh, you're, you're a... You're a communist, or you're a socialist, or you're a, a Marxist, my God, you know? But it's interesting how those ideas that were, that were born of the criticism of capital and capitalism, you know, are so, you know, anytime you know that something is completely dismissed or, or reacted to without any real attention paid to the actual subject of what you're saying you know that it's part of the part of the mind control um th thing that's going on in the western world but anyway i'm going to stop here and uh well it's november 12 2023 um i guess we just had veterans day um yesterday and the day before 
But uh, this is another thing that might be an interesting podcast about how the military has really just become so embedded in even sports, you know, that you can't go to a ball game without there being some reference to a, you know, something to do with a veteran or a military person or having served or, you know, you're not even allowed to question any of it. And, um, you know, it's the questioning that leads to positive results, actually. Um, the blind allegiance to, to this is, is not good policy. Anyway, I'm going to leave that for another day. Um, and we'll hopefully have another podcast this week sometime midweek. Until then, it's Giovanni McGuire, Sunday, November 12th, 2023. And that's the Bye Joe show for today. Take care.